trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Look, I'm not here to tell you what to think. Okay? I'm not that smart. I don't have the credentials. I don't have the authority. And uh, truthfully, I'm just not uh, the kind of guy who likes to tell everybody what they need to do. Having said that, though, I'm going to give you a well-timed kick in the seat of the pants, encouraging you to think for yourself and to think as clearly and independently as you possibly can. Why? Well, let's just say the world is becoming a more complicated place as we go, and there's a lot of deception out there. There's a lot of uh, propaganda. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. There's also the need for people who will stand on principle. And in order to do that, you've got to be willing to break from the crowd sometimes and and know who you are, know what you stand for, and be willing to do it even if you're the only person who's making that stand. And I understand that is a very difficult thing to do because we don't want to be the odd man out. We don't want to be that person who everybody thinks is, well, they're just on the lunatic fringe because they're not chanting in unison with us. So let me start here with a quote from Nitya Prakash. Simply says, if you are willing to abandon your principles for convenience or social acceptability, they're not your principles. They are your costume. Now, if that stings your heart like it stings mine, I think you found the right place. This is, this is where you can safely revel in wrong think and where we'll, uh, we'll get a better feel of what's going on in the world as well as how you and I can stand for what we know to be true. Not in a way that we're pushing it on everybody, but simply in a way that our influence is being felt by the people who are closest to us. So, with that in mind, shall we dive in? First of all, let me let me mention a few of my sponsors here. HSLMO.com, MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, and Garage Door Pros. This is actually GarageDoorProServices.com. I've got links to every one of these sponsors in my show notes. I hope that you'll take the time to get to know them, to do business with them if you can. And if you if you don't have if you don't have a need right now for what they're offering, maybe you know someone who does. Send them their way. But help their message reach the right ears. So the words safe and effective. You've heard these a lot over the last couple of years. And I understand right now I'm triggering some people simply by by saying the words safe and effective. Got a great article here from Steve Kirsch from his Substack on how the safe and effective narrative is falling apart. And I, maybe I should have put a trigger warning in here, you know, from, from the very beginning, because I'm, I'm going to challenge some of the conventional wisdom that, uh, wink, wink, everybody knows instinctively, you know, that uh, everything is, is just going great in terms of masks and vaccines and so forth. Safe and effective, though, particularly applies to the vaccines. And Steve Kirsch has pulled together a list of over 35 leading indicators that the momentum is actually moving in favor of those who have questioned these things. In fact, he says, I'd be surprised if the narrative doesn't fall apart soon. It's unraveling quickly in the UK. So here is, I'm just going to give you a quick skim of his list, but you can find it in my show notes. You can follow the link and read these for yourself. 
35 indicators that the safe and effective narrative is falling apart. Steve says it's a devastating list. And for some reason, he says nobody really wants to fact check him on it. So, number one, the vaccine deaths are now simply too massive to keep hiding and explaining them away. So he goes through this list here. Uh, Non-COVID excess deaths. Why are they rising? Experts call for probe as mortality rates in England and Wales climb despite drop in coronavirus deaths. By the way, he links in every one of these points to what he's talking about. So it's not just, I'll just have some free form, you know, opinion here and then let's see where it goes. He's done his research. Number two, excess deaths are on the rise, but not because of COVID. Office for National Statistics data leads health experts to call for urgent investigation into what's causing the excess mortality. Number three, England. Excess deaths on the rise, but not because of COVID. Experts call for investigation. This is one that really grabbed my eye. Number four, there's a 163% rise in life insurance claims at Lincoln National. Now, this is the fifth largest insurance company in the U.S. This increase is huge. That's not a 63% increase. It's a 163% increase. That's almost a tripling of the death rate. That isn't COVID. COVID doesn't kill anywhere near that number of people. He says, we're looking at the biggest killer in history, and nobody can figure out what it is. And he links to a video, and he says, you will never see a story like this on mainstream media. They ignore it. But that's not all. He also points out how life insurance companies in countries all over the world are reporting record numbers of excess deaths. So these aren't just statistical fluctuations. These deaths are caused by a huge intervention that's affecting the health of millions of people. And it's all new. Nothing like this ever happened before 2021. Nothing of this magnitude has ever happened in their history, which goes back over 100 years. So these were actually, I I should point out, these were sub points of just point one of his 35 indicators that the safe and effective uh, narrative is, is falling apart. He talks about how the overall shift in the cause of death from respiratory to cardiac is impossible to ignore. And it can't be explained if the vaccines are safe and effective. He says a friend of mine who lives in Massachusetts noticed this after he made a Freedom of Information Act request for the death records in Massachusetts. He looked at the ICD-10 coded causes of deaths and noted that the causes of deaths shifted from the primarily J codes, respiratory due to COVID, to I codes circulatory due to the vaccine. Now we learn the exact same thing happened in the UK in 2021, according to official UK government numbers. This is a huge effect, and he says there must be a cause, but health authorities are simply baffled, and they can't explain it because they're not permitted to blame the vaccine, because that would make everyone look bad. So it's safe to say that such a shift has never happened before in history. Now, clearly, something new happened starting in 2021 that affected massive numbers of people worldwide. And Steve Kirsch says, I wonder what that could have been. Health authorities simply cannot come up with a single thing that was new in 2021. By the way, before I go any further down this list, you understand the implications of this, right? When it becomes clear that there are millions of people who are having adverse effects up to and including, you know, dying because of this. What do you suppose is going to happen? 
I know for some people it's it's unthinkable. And and I got to be honest with you, about half of my family members have been vaccinated. And it absolutely tears me up to think that they might be at risk because of these vaccines, the COVID vaccine specifically. But when we, when we start seeing people succumbing, as we're starting to see now, suddenly, without expectation, otherwise healthy people dropping dead, there's going to come a point where eventually people will not be able to ignore what's right in front of them. And I, I get, it sounds conspiratorial. Well, gee, you know, what are you suggesting, Brian? This was some kind of a major conspiracy to kill off most of the world population? I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But if, in fact, these vaccines are causing the kind of harm or could be one of the explanations behind this, this undeniable spike in unexplained deaths, can you imagine what's going to happen when millions of people Realize they have been either sickened or injured or seen loved ones killed because of it? I mean, I I fear for people in the medical profession. And at the same time, I also feel a lot of, uh, I don't know what the word is. I want to say rage, but that's really not not quite accurate. I feel a lot of uh, disgust for those within the medical profession who went along and enabled and pushed this so hard that it has every appearance that there were people trying to eliminate the control group by pushing, let's get as many people vaccinated as possible, let's make them as miserable as we can, throw them out of their jobs, deny them any kind of movement or or entry into society, they can't travel, they can't do this, they can't do that. The people who backed those kinds of policies bear responsibility for the kind of harm that we're seeing. Now, I realize maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse. Well, Brian, there's been no conclusive proof, but here's the thing. They're not even looking at it. You're not even allowed to question whether the vaccine might have something to do with this unexpected, extremely obvious rise in sudden deaths. And yet, look when they start. Look who they're affecting. It does leave some very interesting questions unanswered, at least at the moment. Yep. Yep. I don't know what to tell you. It makes me extremely uncomfortable, too, because I, I'm, we could be talking about what is the greatest crime ever perpetrated against humanity. If only people could ask the questions. If only we could get some answers. What a crazy time. Check out the link in the article. It's from Steve Kirsch's Substack. It's very informative. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. You or someone you love likes to get out there and enjoy the shooting sports. Maybe you're looking to gain skill at arms. A lot of people are first-time gun owners. I don't know how many millions of guns were sold here in the last few years, but it's a lot. So you probably owe it to yourself to get some training. You're going to need ammo for that. Contact HSLAmmo.com. I've got a link in my show notes. They'll take good care of you. High quality, new and remanufactured ammo. Definitely a great way to convert some of that money into skill skill that cannot be taken from you because once you have attained it and once you've uh, really ingrained it, it's yours. You get to keep it for life. All right. So we're talking about the narrative falling apart 
for uh, safe and effective vaccines. And I understand I'm swimming very contrary to the current here, but, you know, I think a lot of people's eyes have been opened here in the last couple of years. And we're starting to learn something that is, is a little bit shocking when you first consider it. But the more you recognize, wait a minute, I, you know, our entire system, and I'm talking worldwide, our societies, the, the power structures in our lives are very much dependent upon us being propagandized. And when you start to see that propaganda, the first time you really open your eyes and go, wait a minute, I'm being fed a line here and I'm expected to believe this and not question it under penalty of, you know, being uh, pushed to the margins as some kind of a troublemaker. But when you see it, it's really hard not to see it thereafter. This is why clear and independent thinking on the part of the average citizen is strongly discouraged. Group think, no, you you come along here and you say what everybody in the group is saying. You chant in unison with them. Don't you dare question these things on your own. I think I'd rather face uncomfortable truths than comfortable lies, though. And I'm guessing you're probably the same way, or you wouldn't even have, have clicked on this particular podcast. So I want to share with you this article from Caitlin Johnstone. Humanity is learning that the rules are all made up and can be rewritten at any time. That's a big shift for a lot of people because, well, you know, we do these things because this is, this is written in stone. This is the way it should be. But is it? She says the human species is at an adapt or perish juncture in its history on this planet. We will either drastically change the way we operate or we will wipe ourselves out by nuclear war or environmental cataclysm. As she says, we've been brought to this point by our unhealthy relationship with mental narrative. The adaptation we're being challenged to make would be a collective movement into a healthy relationship with mental narrative. Caitlin Johnstone says, where we're at, we're where we're at rather, because powerful people have been able to manipulate us into believing mental stories about reality, which aren't based in fact. In fact, she says history is one long, unbroken tale of large groups of humans being manipulated by much smaller groups of humans in ways which benefit the smaller groups, and that tale continues to this day. Propaganda and other forms of narrative control are used to manufacture consent for status quo models of governance, economic and monetary systems, and foreign policy, which benefit an elite few at the expense of the general population. And what's interesting is that underneath all the babbling propaganda stories about what's happening in our world, humanity is indeed showing signs that we are collectively slipping out of our old relationship with mental narrative. She says it's happening in the usual sloppy, awkward, two steps forward, one step back shamble that's always marked all of human progress. But it's happening. Now she says it's happening in the way people are moving away from religion as we collectively discover that those ancient narratives which so long transfixed our ancestors are not necessary or helpful for finding meaning, morality, and fulfillment in our lives. And we collectively notice that doctrines about eternal reward for obedience and eternal damnation for disobedience sound made up. Now, obviously, I disagree with her on this point. But I'm willing to... I'm willing to hear what she has to say because there are some other points she makes here that I think are spot on. So, if she's missing the mark on this one, listen to these observations. She says, the failure of narrative is happening with the rise of cryptocurrencies, as people figure out that money is made up, and we can change the rules whenever we want. Money is nothing more than an agreed-upon story that's only true as long as we all continue to pretend it is. 
a collective narrative that we can collectively rewrite at any time. She says it's happening as people figure out that a romantic relationship needn't look the way they've looked throughout most of our recorded history. That it's the only narrative which says one man and one woman must love and have sex with only each other throughout their lives or even throughout their relationship. Now, she says those rules have only ever been made of empty narrative fluff and can be replaced with an entirely different set of guidelines. Again, I'm going to disagree with her on this one. I know people have tried to to reinvent the wheel many times. Isn't it interesting, though, throughout most of human history, in fact, throughout all of human history, the standard model always seems to come back to one form or another of a man and a woman in a permanent relationship with the children that uh, they create within that relationship. I know, right now we're in a, in a time where people are turning loose of that, but nonetheless. She says it's happening as people figure out how to, uh, how to prescribe, whoops, let's try this again, how much narrative overlays things like gender and sexuality. That there's nothing inscribed on the fabric of reality which prescribes our long-standing models of men and women and what their roles are and how their sexuality should express. Rearranging societal narratives that are deeply entrenched in our culture is causing a lot of chaos and confusion. And the arguments it's bringing up are very upsetting for a lot of people, but it's gradually working itself out as people pick through the narratives and sort out fact from story. She's right, but not in the way that she's probably expressing here. Um, It is causing a lot of confusion and a lot of chaos as people reject, you know, the, the basic reality of biology and nature itself. And that rearranging of those narratives is is what's causing a lot of our division over gender and, and sexuality. But again, I may disagree with her on these points, but I'm going to hear her out because she gets to she gets to some other things here that uh, that again really point out there's a lot of narrative that's being beamed at us from official places that may not really be in our best interest. She says, in each issue I'm describing here, it's brought in its own set of quandaries, challenges, bad faith actors and abuses that had previously been avoided under the older models, but it's not like the old models have been free of these things either. And as we discuss and push and pull and muddle our way through with these obstacles with each other, she says, we're collectively sinking into the real important insight which underlies the, all those more superficial areas of contention. Namely, our society is made of narrative, and we can change the rules whenever we want. Now she says, we're in the early days of this growing insight. But if you look at the conceptual rigidity we had as a society, even a few decades ago, around our how it is stories and how it ought to be stories, she says, it's clear there's a real unraveling happening. A relaxation in our collective certainty about how the various components of our civilization are meant to look. Now, she believes this is part of our first step in in unraveling and and, uh, becoming a healthy society. The first step to an adaptation we're going to have to collectively make to survive as a species. She says you can't rewrite a rule if you believe it's written in stone. You can't rewrite a story if you don't know that you are its author. We can't rewrite the structure of human civilization if we haven't yet learned that none of the old rules are real. And we can't collectively withdraw our consent for status quo systems until we collectively understand that our consent is actually required. Harkening back to the Matrix, she says you can't bend the spoon until you realize that there is no spoon. 
So she wor- she says, don't worry when you see the old rigid boundaries start to blur and wobble. Don't panic when you see the old stories being met with incredulity. It may look awkward and sloppy right now, but that's just what it looks like when a thinking species begins moving into a conscious relationship with thought. Now, again, she's coming at this from a, a different place on the political spectrum and the ideological spectrum than I am. But I do believe that uh, if you can get your mind around the idea that a lot of what is being told to us and upheld as well, this is just the way things are, is in fact narrative. I don't think Caitlin has the advantage that I feel like I have in being able to turn to some time-tested eternal sources of truth. But I think she's doing a dang fine job of encouraging people to think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout-out here to Garage Door Pros. This is going to be of particular interest to my listeners who live in and around St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City, and in the corner of southwestern Utah. This is a local company, and it's a company where there's a lot of growth, a lot of building going on. They provide install, service, and repair garage doors, and this includes residential as well as commercial service. They are doors made in America. They're very quick to get to get you your doors. Much faster response, much faster lead than other companies can give you. And there's a couple of options you have for getting a hold of them. You can go to their website, which I link to in my show notes, garagedoorproservices.com, or you can call 435-525-2773. Give my friend Seth a call. He and his crew will take very good care of you. Again, happy to have Garage Door Pros as one of my sponsors here on the show. Okay, that last segment from, from Caitlin Johnstone. Wait, she was challenging everything, Brian, man. She was challenging religion. She was challenging, you know, the, the norms of, of the nuclear family. And she was. And, I, you know, it makes me uncomfortable, too. But I'm willing to, to face uncomfortable opinions and uncomfortable ideas because I believe Caitlin Johnstone is really sincerely trying to speak the truth as best she understands it, understands it rather. And she's encouraging people like you and me to think, not necessarily think exactly like her, but to really think and question the narratives in front of us. So if you were feeling like, wow, that kind of shook my faith a little bit. All right, let me let me make this up to you because I've got a great article here from Diana Aloko. She used to be a writer for uh, Rush Limbaugh and for his... Uh, Oh, his, his Limbaugh letter. But this is a fantastic article about uh, how the problems we face can't be solved with just political solutions alone. In fact, she calls it four simple words to save America. Starts with a couple of headlines here. 100-year-old veteran breaks down crying, this is not the country we fought for. That's from Fox 13. Uh, here's uh, City of Orlando fireworks promo says, folks probably don't want to celebrate hate-filled U.S. We can't blame them. Here's one from uh, Portland to San Francisco. How open-air drug markets turned liberal dreams into residents' nightmares. Widespread addiction and homelessness across the cities. The wreckage of an America broken is strewn street to street. Now, her point is simply this. Diana Aloko says, So many of us feel it. Something beyond unease, beyond disquiet. A sense of doom and horror. Something important is very wrong. 
A keystone has crumbled or gone missing. The country is unmoored. Every terrible headline conveys with it foreboding, a warning that a kind of curtain is descending across the nation. It's an insatiable, sadistic force, relentless and repulsive, sucking life out of the air. The awful thing is sweeping our land in a, the awful thing sweeping our land, she says, is a predatory menace fed by dark hearts whose bounty is captive souls. It's disordered, brutal, thieving, violent. Where it rules and it aims to rule us from sea to sea, there is no justice but injustice, no law but abuse. There's only oppression, addiction, cruelty, and death. And, and believe it or not, it has an ancient name. Wickedness. Deadly sins are given joyless parades and pharmacology whose lies bring despair and unreason. Heart sickness. Corruption in high, praise, high places and low spreads with an icy fear that whispers, the worst is yet to come. And she says, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Those of us chilled at the encroaching ill wind ask each other how we fight it. What should we do? Although there are millions of us, our desire to somehow battle the diabolical has not yet found its political response. The current knot of savagery and hatreds, this tangle of tribalism and lawlessness as old as humankind, cannot be straightened through electoral means. Instead, as most of us have rightly said, America's problem is spiritual. Now, true as that is, there has not emerged a unified spiritual response either. She says, as a child of the 1950s, I was raised in what seems in retrospect to have been a spiritual nation, or at least a faith-friendly one. Religion was, well, intersectional in America in those days. Talk of God was non-sectarian and non-partisan. It was also commonplace and unremarkable, the connective tissue of civic culture in the wake of World War II. But she says, my first year of public school was the last year we prayed together there. As kindergartners, we folded our hands before our milk and cookies and said, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for this food. And she says, the sweetness of the memory catches in my throat. Then, law changed, and with it began the long recession of public God appreciation, which went out like a tide over many decades, at first slowly and then at super speed. Now you're fired for praying alone on an empty field as a high school coach. You're viciously pilloried for offering thoughts and prayers and condolence. But this is not yet another gloomy review of our dire conditions, she says, because there abides in the living recall of my generation among the widely scattered remnants of the traditional America that yet survives, one of the greatest spiritual weapons we can wield, our national motto. She says, I was not yet two years old when in both houses of Congress, they passed a joint resolution declaring, in God we trust, the official motto of the United States. There was no debate, nor a single dissenting vote. By law, it remains America's watchword to, the, to this day. Public Law 84851, signed by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, July 30th, 1956. She says, few remember, but the Senate officially reaffirmed that motto in 2006, as did the House just 11 years ago, with nine dissenting Democrats, some of them including Representatives Jerry Nadler, Bobby Scott, and Judy Chu, still sit in the House chamber that displays the motto in huge gold letters high on the wall behind the Speaker's chair. The declaration, In God We Trust, is literally written in stone. Despite Democrat objections, the 2011 congressional reaffirmation goes even farther than the 1956 original text, this time also supporting and encouraging 
the public display of the national motto in all public buildings, public schools, and other government institutions. You can find the stark four words of the motto in bronze, cast atop, uh, atop rather cast metal depictions of the Great Seal, on plaques scattered among federal offices, including the U.S. Capitol, the Longworth House Office Building, the Dirksen Senate Office Building. Virtually our entire government, elected and unelected, daily passes by these declarations of trust in God. But the words go mostly unnoticed. It is law that they appear on all U.S. currency, but as fewer and fewer Americans handle cash, the tangible national reminder of whom we trust is vanishing. Our motto does not grace digital commerce. God is not the master referenced on MasterCard, nor does his name appear on any other plastic to which we entrust our accounts. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, and Tether are untethered to the federal in-God-we-trust requirement. Now, she says, coincidentally, we drifted from our anchor as our money went godless, so to speak. If our national motto was remembered at all, it was reduced to a trivia question. I wager less than 30% of Americans know we have a national motto beyond the old one-liner, in God we trust, all others pay cash. After all, is there a duller term than national motto? The eyes glaze over. So the four simple words have been dormant, awaiting renewal. Their power shrouded for a time, until now. But she says those words are lightning, ready to be let loose, because here's the truth. America's explicit trust in the living God is the scarlet cord that runs from before the revolution, through the Civil War, both world wars, through the Cold War, and beyond. To examine this record is to open the forgotten history of America, a narrative inconvenience deliberately suppressed. And she gives a tiny example of some of the complex and and long lineage of our motto, unbroken from the founders to you. Mary Washington speaking to her young son George as a young soldier as he left home. Remember that God is our only sure trust. From 1814, Francis Scott Key, last verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. In 1861, Salmon Chase, Secretary of the Treasury, as the motto was shortened to four words for U.S. coinage. No nation can be strong except in the strength of God, or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. 1955, here's Representative Charles Bennett, who fought to put in God we trust on all U.S. paper currency. He said, at the base of our freedom is our faith in God and the desire of Americans to live by his will and his guidance. As long as this country trusts in God, it will prevail. And so it remains. So this is the message from American generations before us. So she says, what we must do is deploy our national motto, unfurl it as our banner, reactivate our superpower, and place our trust in God. Now, I happen to agree with this. I think this is the most overlooked resource that we have at our disposal, and especially in times of great trouble. I'll let you check out the rest of the article for yourself. It's linked in my show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I've made no secret of the fact that I am pretty concerned with what I see as the potential for real, honest to goodness, food shortages. Like the real deal coming our way. And I would encourage you, think about getting some food storage set aside if you don't already have some. If you have some, great. Get more. Because the chances are very good. Not only will you need it, but I bet there are people around you who you love and care for who will likely benefit from this. I'm not trying to incite any kind of panic. I'm just saying it would be a really good idea to have those things on hand that if for some reason, for a period of time, you had to make do with what you have, it's going to be a lot easier than, uh, you know, if you look at your pantry and go, man, there's just not much here. Lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in my show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. While you're there, feel free to go to the bottom of the show notes page. Subscribe. All it takes is an email address, and we've got you covered. Well, so much of public policy is sold to us on the basis of how it's going to manage or alleviate risk in our lives. And I've got a great essay here from Donald J. Boudreau. This is published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. How assessing risks accurately requires accurate information. He says, recently while on a hike, I twisted my ankle and the pain was unpleasant and I was annoyed by the consequent downtime from physical exercise. Now, he says, I could have inferred from this experience that my hiking boots are inadequate. Had I made this inference, I'd have purchased a new higher quality pair of hiking boots. One result would have been a reduced probability of twisting my ankle and thus suffering pain and downtime from exercising. This result, standing alone, would obviously have been beneficial. But, of course, the decision to buy a better, more expensive hiking boots would have uh, had for me results in addition to this beneficial one. The most notable of those other results is that I would have had less money to invest or spend on options other than new hiking boots. He says, I can't specify just what form such a sacrifice would have taken. A slight reduction in my savings, perhaps, or restocking my wine collection with less tasty vintages, whatever, would have been the downsides of buying my, of my buying new hiking boots. He says, I chose not to suffer those negative experiences, despite the fact that I was fully aware that new and better hiking boots would have reduced my chances of again twisting my ankle. Now he asks the question, is my inaction on the hiking boot front irrational? Well, if my only goal in life were to avoid twisting my ankle, then the answer would be yes. With no other goal, such as accumulating bigger savings or enjoying fine wine, I would have sacrificed nothing by buying new and better hiking boots. But he says, because I have goals, countless goals, in addition to reducing the prospect of twisting my ankle, the decision not to buy more protective hiking boots is perfectly rational. Now, if on future hikes I keep twisting my ankles places, then I will indeed buy new and better boots. The reason is that the increased frequency of injury would tell me what a single injury does not, that my hiking boots likely are more inadequate than I'm willing to tolerate, and thus they should be replaced. Now, Donald Bordreau says, look, nothing in the above tale is startling. I'm sure that the essential features of this dull account of my decision-making regarding hiking boots apply to routine decisions that you make. You don't, for example, conclude that one stumble on your front porch stairs, uh, that, you know, your stairs are too steep and therefore should be replaced. You don't stop dining at your favorite restaurant just because you encounter there one disappointing meal. 
You don't change the route you normally take to drive to work just because one morning on your commute you get into a single fender bender or even a more serious wreck. In our daily personal lives, we understand that accidents happen. No particular mishap or accident that you suffer is necessarily evidence that you've been doing things wrongly. Put differently, each adult understands, if only subconsciously, that every possible course of action carries some risk. Therefore, an actual manifestation of a course of action's risk is not itself proof that if the risk had been underestimated or that precautions against the risk were insufficient. Yet he says this mature understanding of the inescapability of risk and the meaning of accidents and occasional misfortunes seems lacking in the public sector. Very often, a newsworthy calamity is taken to be proof that precautions against such a calamity must be intensified. Oh, some of these are going to sound familiar. Was there a recent mass shooting? We must therefore tighten restrictions on gun ownership. Was Americans' access to imported medical supplies obstructed? We must therefore rely less on foreign production of these supplies. Was there a fatal accident on an, on an amusement park ride? We must therefore increase the safety of amusement park rides. Did insiders at a big corporation commit fraud? We must therefore strengthen government oversight and regulation of corporate managers' behavior. Was someone caught getting through airport security with a gun? We must therefore increase the severity of security screenings at airports. Did someone recently die of food poisoning from canned vegetables bought in a supermarket? We must therefore regulate the safety of foods more stringently. Now, Donald Boudreau says, look, each of these events is unfortunate, but none of them standing alone implies that we must therefore do something. Short of completely prohibiting the activity in question, every degree of precaution regarding that activity leaves some chance that engaging in that activity will result in a mishap, perhaps even a catastrophe. For example, even the most stringent and strictly enforced regulation of food safety will not eliminate the chance of someone dying from food poisoning contracted from store-bought foods. So it follows that if the government responds to a new case of fatal food poisoning by intensifying its regulation of food safety, the results might be regulation that are excessively restrictive. Of course, if reducing the prospects of food poisoning were humanity's only goal, then each and every increase in the stringency of food safety regulation would be worthwhile. But because we humans have countless goals other than to avoid food poisoning, steps taken to avoid such poisoning are costly. With each such step we take, we deny ourselves other valuable goods, services, and experiences. And he says at some point then, an extra dollop of, economists call it a marginal increment of food safety, is no longer worthwhile. The very real benefit we would get from the extra protection from food poisoning is less than the very real benefits from other goods, services, and experiences that we would have to sacrifice to obtain this extra dollop of protection from food poisoning. Now, Don Boudreau says, look, unfortunately, politicians are biased towards reacting to the latest headlines. Reacting in this manner is a cheap, flashy way of creating the appearance of being caring and responsive. And reporters and headline writers are biased toward blaring out and even exaggerating news of the latest unfortunate event. Too often in response, governments spring into action to implement or to strengthen protections against whatever misfortune is blared in today's headlines. And the too frequent result is excessive protection against particular risks. So while a series of particular misfortunes might accurately reveal the desirability of taking further precautions against those misfortunes, 
in almost all cases, a single or infrequent misfortune, a misfortune that occurs only once or relatively rarely, does not, standing alone, reveal that precautions should be intensified. Each of us in our private lives has strong incentives to make these assessments correctly. For if we don't, we personally suffer. But Donald J. Boudreau says politicians and bureaucrats, in contrast, not only do not personally suffer if they impose excessive precautions, they're often lauded for doing so, which is another good reason for reducing the role of government. What a, what a great dose of common sense. I wish that was something that uh, we could get through to more of our elected officials. Because that, that desire to do something, do something, come on, step up, do something. I mean, come on, this is the battle cry right now of everybody who's, who's calling for gun control. Yeah, I don't understand why it's, it's such a seductive way to, to, to do things, but it is. And, you know, and, and too many people have that, uh, that sense that, well, as long as we do this, you know, everything's going to be just great. Nah, not so. I think back to Frederick Bastiat and his uh, essay, That Which is Seen and That Which is Not Seen. All these public policies that are proposed, well, we're going to protect you this way, carry with them risk that there will be unintended consequences. And, and here's the thing. Smart policymakers, smart economists, for that matter, smart citizens, not only weigh what the intended and stated goal of a particular piece of policy is going to be, but they also try very hard to anticipate and to figure out who else might this affect on the periphery. What are some of the things that could happen as a result of this? I don't have a link to it. I'll I'll have to put it in a future uh, copy of my show notes, but the Cobra Effect an article from uh, James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies from the Foundation for Economic Education and the uh, Words and Numbers uh, podcast. Brilliant story about uh, how, you know, one piece of public policy, which was to get rid of cobras in a particular Indian village, resulted in even more cobras because the policymakers didn't think through what their uh, policies were going to bring about. See, this is why a lot of people like myself feel when someone proposes, you know, government ought to do this. We say, no, it really shouldn't. This is The Brian Hyde Show.